Hello, I'm Kevin Moore and you're now listening to The Moore Show. For the next hour, I'll cover subjects of an alternative variety that most shows do not touch. On today's show, I'm joined by paranormal investigator Malcolm Robinson. So stay tuned, enjoy and I'll be right back. Mr. Show or a guest? Want to know more about The Moore Show and upcoming guests? Then log on to www.themoreshow.co.uk. to The Moore Show, and here's your host, Kevin Moore. Malcolm Robinson grew up in the little Scottish town of Alloa before eventually settling in Hastings in 2007. After reading many ghost stories and UFO books as a young boy, he quickly became hooked on the paranormal, and from there his interest flourished, and in 1979 he formed SPI, Strange Phenomena Investigations, a group which is still running today. Malcolm, welcome to the show. Nice to be here. Now, Malcolm, tell me a bit about yourself and uh, how this all started for you. Yeah, well, I've, I've always been interested in uh, the weird and the wonderful. You know, uh, ever since I was a youngster, I uh, eagerly bought up all the books I could on, on these aspects. And uh, I found that if I ever wanted to learn something more about these mysteries, then I would have to become more actively involved. 
And uh, so I joined various societies, uh, one of which was uh, the British UFO Research Association. And, uh, but in 1979, I formed my own society entitled Strange Phenomena Investigations. And basically, you know, the aims of SBI is just to, to find out <laughs> exactly what's going on with ghosts, poltergeist, UFOs, if there are any validity to these claims. Because I must say, first and foremost, I was very, very, very sceptical of all these things right at the very start. And do you mainly deal with investigations in Scotland? Well, I left Scotland in 1998, um, but uh, that's now being run, or the part of the business, if you like, is being run by one of my colleagues up there. And um, so we have a, a, a base in both countries, if, if you like, you know, one in Scotland and one here in England. So it complements both countries, and which is great because, um, but as far as me personally investigating cases up there, that's left to my colleagues uh, of SBI up in Scotland. Okay. And how many investigations, I mean, roughly in a normal year, would you, would you cover? Well, in, the, in its heyday, we were doing something upwards of about just over 100 investigations. Doesn't sound very much, but over 365 days of the year, that's quite a lot when you take, break it all down. Yeah. Um, not as much as that these days. I'm probably only doing about maybe 40, 50 per year. Um, it's got, it seems to have went a little bit more quiet since I've moved down to Hastings, um, which is kind of bizarre. But uh, at the end of the day, nothing for me personally beats um, spending a night in a haunted house and <laughs> the feeling and the charisma and the panache and everything goes with it. It's really, really good. Yeah, yeah. So you've done that a few times. Yeah, Absolutely, now, yeah. Now, let, let's start with a famous Scottish case. Let's start with the Loch Ness. Now, you've looked into this case. Could you tell the audience a bit about your research into Loch Ness and, and, and what, what you sort of discovered? Well, effectively, it all started as a very, very small boy when my parents took me up to Loch Ness and um, I was absolutely mesmerised, not only by the size of the place, but by the charisma and the stories that went uh, behind it. And we went, we did all the pleasure trips up and down the, the loch and the pleasure boats and stuff. And it wasn't until I was obviously older that I decided that, hey, you know, let's get my hands dirty here. Let's, let's find out what's going on. And um, so I started interviewing people around the loch, people who admittedly had been interviewed before. Those people were my first port of call, and I re-interviewed them to find out, you know, about their claims. And many nights I spent camped on the shores of Loch Ness with uh, my trusty binoculars and uh, yeah. scanning the loch in hopes of a sighting. Um, but some of the people I've interviewed have been top, top, top class people and um, who have convinced me that, you know, people who've lived at Loch Ness for many years, they have seen the conditions of the loch change, the moods of the loch, the darkness, the waterfowl on the surface and, um, you know, the shapes that can move in shadows. But what they have seen, Kevin, is not uh, any normal animal at work, you know, it's an, an on Loch Ness. Right, okay. Now, I mean, uh, uh, how would you describe the creature then? Well, for instance, I mean, uh, I spoke to the former water bailiff, a chap called Alex Campbell, who was the very, very, very first man in the world to put Loch Ness on the world's map, on the world stage. He saw something back in 1933, and uh, he, was, uh, he saw a long tapering neck with a small head thrusting out of the water and just snaking, looking about very excitedly, etc. And then it just cascaded back into the depths of the loch. And um, he, you know, he's, he's a gamekeeper. He's a man who has been there for years. He saw that. Um, and another fellow, uh, a chap called Father Gregory Brucey, who was the Benedictine priest at Fort Augustus Abbey, he took a friend from Westminster Cathedral down to the Loch Ness side some years ago and it's a long story, but very briefly, the loch was like a sheet of glass. And he says, well, there you go. <laughs> you know, what you're looking at is the famous Loch Ness. Yeah. He's, no sooner had he said that, and the same thing, this long neck just thrust out from the water, as if on cue to his startled friend from England, you know, and he went, <laughs> my God, what's this? And it's weird because, you know, Father Gregory Bruce, that was only his second sighting in about 50 years or something. And um, this guy had been up three seconds near enough, and he saw something straight away. The, the sightings themselves, however, do not last very long. It's 
for me personally, it's not an air-breathing uh, animal. It only accidentally breaks the surface when it's feeding for fish, which is maybe four to five feet below the surface of the water. And um, I mean, I went. I was fortunate, fortunate enough to go down in the Loch Ness submarine back in 1994, which again is, a, is another story. Okay, and I mean, do you believe it's prehistoric? Um, I don't know. It's very difficult to say because although Loch Ness was indeed open to the sea many millions of years ago, the land rose and cut off Loch Ness uh, from the sea at the Inverness end. Um, I mean, people suspect or try and say that it's maybe some creature like the plesiosaur. Um, but the plesiosaur was a salt um, uh, water animal, whereas the, obviously Loch Ness is fresh water. Whether it's adapted to the conditions, I don't know. It's stretching the bounds of credibility to think that we have plesiosaurs in Loch Ness, and I doubt it very much, even though we have these wonderful, wonderful photographs taken by Dr. Robert Rhines, who did some experiments back in the 70s, the 60s and 70s, I should say, and he managed to get these diamond-shaped flipper photographs of this flipper and his bulbulous body, and um, incredible photographs. And, of course, as we know, the plesiosaur had these flipper-like paddles. That's right. Like. Um, so, I don't know. Some people say it could be a, a large sturgeon fish, which can grow to about 25 feet long. Just one thing we should remember, um, the celiacanth fish was thought to have been extinct, a prehistoric fish was thought to be extinct until they started to find them alive off the coast of Madagascar in 1938, I think it was. Yeah. And um, so who knows? We're finding things all the time. <laughs> yeah, so it, so it could be a, a reptile mammal or, or fish, like you say, maybe, yeah. Yeah, I mean, sonar, even though we have some good eyewitness testimony, sonar is the best, best course of a device to prove what's in there. Operation Deep Scan, some years ago, the best sophisticated sonar in the world. They had this flotilla of boats from one side of the lock to the other, just sweeping up and down, up and down the lock for days, and they did. They did manage to capture something anomalous on the sonar scopes, which was not a grouped shoal of fish, swimming and diving, swimming and diving. It was like um, something large. And, you know, it's, it's just trying to find the thing. That's the thing. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that lock is uh, immensely deep, isn't it, in some parts? Yeah, it's just under a 1,000 feet uh, in depth, I reckon. Um, people suspect or try and say that there may be caverns leading out to the sea and tunnels and what have you. Um, there's no any evidence of that at all, and I, I should stress that. Um, it's a V-shaped lock, the sides slope down, and um, it's over, just over 24 miles long and about a mile and a half uh, deep, sorry, a mile and a half uh, in breadth. And so you can see the vastness of Loch Ness. The, somebody who, I don't know where they get these guys, somebody estimated that you could get the world's population three times over. In Loch Ness. Now, how they work these things out, Kevin, I'll never know. No. But that's a good one. I think that's quite funny. No, but it, yeah, it just goes to show that, you know, it's a vast sort of you know, size of, of, of Loch and some parts prob probably deeper than some parts of the North Sea, really. It's actually deeper in parts of the North Sea, yeah. Yeah, sure. so, so we, we're not talking a, a, a small small scope. So um, just one other question regarding the, the, uh, the Loch Ness. I mean, some people say that this creature, it, it could be quite hostile. And, um, you know, uh, it's not the sort of nice picture it's painted that as the movie's kind of painted. It's actually quite, could be quite a, a, a nasty kind of creature. I mean, what do you think feel about that? Um, to my knowledge, to my knowledge, I don't think it's ever harmed anybody. There have been sightings of more than one creature at one time, very rare. Um, I mean, I'll be giving a lecture on Loch Ness and Hastings on the 26th of uh, July, uh, the whole history of Loch Ness and all its sightings. And I'll even be talking about, would you believe, some road sightings. I know that sounds bizarre and some people will go, what? But back in the 1930s, a Hugh Spicer and another chap actually saw this large body moving across the road and going through the bracken and then sploshing into the, into the Loch Ness itself. And, um, I mean, you don't get these sightings these days. I don't know what, what they saw or if they were just pulling the wool over people's eyes. But it's never, to answer your question, as far as I know, it's, it's never really harmed anybody as such. Okay. Um, yeah. Now, didn't Steven Spielberg take an interest in your work at one point? 
Well, they did. I mean, um, yeah, back in 1994, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, well, what happened was, initially the story goes that um, I had a phone call from uh, the Sun newspaper in Glasgow, uh, the Scottish version of the Sun, and they, they were running a story about Ted Danson's Loch Ness film at the time. And um, this chap, this reporter called me and says, Malcolm, if Nessie is real, how would you capture it? How, how would you? And I says, well, funnily enough, I do have this idea, this, this plan, if you like, this device where you would drop this big cage down across from Urquhart uh, Castle. And it's like a boxing ring. If you can, in your, in your listeners' um, brain, if they can try and think of a boxing ring, the ropes, yeah. or something along those lines, at the bottom of Loch Ness. Now, on these ropes would be these spherical balls containing radio biopsy darts. And inside this boxing ring, it would be larger than a boxing ring, I must say, would be this device that's continually turning out, turning out, turning out fish puree just to attract Nessie. I know it sounds bizarre, but <laughs> stay with me. So it would be turning out this fish puree. Now, Nessie, if it truly is there, would detect that and swim towards it. And as it went in this direction and pushed, the large body pushed against these boxing ring type ropes. As soon as it did that, these um, small spherical balls on these ropes would immediately just thrust out these radio biopsy darts, like okay. a, you're pulling a pin of a hand grenade, and it would smack into the body, neutralising it, knocking it out, and surface divers would be able to follow this, uh, come down and, and track it. And anyway, to cut a long story short, he presented the idea to Steven Spielberg, and Steven Spielberg went, well, hey, that ain't so bad, you know, that not, is not such a kooky idea, and I'm going to put, put up the money to help fund this Scottish guy and see if we can maybe capture this. Yeah. So it made big, big press, not only in Scotland, but various parts of Europe, and I was very excited at the possibility that we could devise this trap and get it made, manufactured, and, and get, get it sorted, but sadly... Um, Spielberg went on to do other projects. I think he was on to do The Lost World or something. Okay. And it fell through, sadly, Kevin. But okay. I, I still believe it could still be yeah. directed one day. Well, who knows? Who knows? Now, Malcolm, I understand that you're, you would class your faith as um, spiritualism. Um, would you explain to the audience what spiritualism means and, uh, and about the early days of your um, spiritualism and, and the impact on yourself? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the spiritualism, more or less the movement, if you like, started in Hydesville, New York, um, by the Fox sisters who claimed to have heard noises and rappings and bangings, and it steadily progressed from there. And I, yes, my religion is a Christian spiritualist, which means that I do believe in life after death. Uh, there are these uh, seven principles of the church. And um, having, basically what it comprises for me is... Yeah, although a lot of people believe in God, they've never seen him, but they believe in him, we try to provide facts and evidence that there is this continuity after physical material death. And part of our research has taken me into many, many, many haunted houses. And admittedly, quite a number of these places, nothing happens. But when it does, Kevin, and I've seen things rise up in front of me, move in the air, I've had my face slapped, I've had my hair t pulled. I've seen things which absolutely defy explanation. And we would love for the BBC and ITV cameras to be involved in these investigations. But you would still have the sceptics who would quite rightly say, well, if David Copperfield can make the Statue of Liberty disappear, a Learjet, you know, moving a chest of drawers into mid-air, Malcolm, come on, it could, could be done. And... So at the end of the day, it's very difficult because where do you quantify the proof of the paranormal? Is it a good photograph? Photographs can be faked. Is it a good piece of videotape? Videos can be faked. We're living, we spoke earlier, we're living in the Steven Spielberg age of DreamWorks laboratory where anything can be manipulated on the screen to look real. But it's up to myself and my colleagues worldwide to try and use that, um, the equipment that we have and try and prove to people that, hey, have a look at this. Have a look at this. We've eradicated all the could-bes and maybes here. We just don't know what we're left with. But, um, yeah, spiritualism as, as a whole, it's, to me, it's a wonderful religion. Um, I would say to your listeners, don't believe everything, because there are many fraudulent mediums out there. 
people who want to take the money out of your pocket and just make themselves rich. And it's up to our society as well to try and unmask, unmask fraudulent mediums, people who are just out to deceive people because that is so, so nasty. But thankfully, thankfully, there are some really, really good psychics out there who can tell you things that just blow you away. And that, that's, that's, you know, what we keep trying to look for, these people. And have you come across good psychics? Yeah, I've uh, come across a few simply because I've put myself into that ballpark. When we did investigations in Scotland, Kevin, um, we used to go to, we were invited to various haunted homes by people who just had had enough. This has got to stop. We must get out of this house. What can we do? And they've maybe become aware of our work. They called us in. And I always remember that this wonderful, wonderful lady called Helen Walters, she was very, very psychically gifted, Kevin. And we used to watch her. Any time we went into a haunted house for the very first time, we'd stare at her head, and as soon as she went through that, uh, that building, she'd either go, nod her head, as if to say, yep, I'm picking up something straight away, or she would shake her head and mean, oh, well, nothing's happening in this one. And she always was proved correct, you know, and she was a wonderful psychic. We used to pick up a lot of names in haunted homes, and give these names to the family and say, look, we got a, a Jim, just making this up, a Jim Thompson, can you, can you take that? And then they'll either say yes or no. So mm. it's providing the evidence and seeing where we go. And um, obviously you've um, you know, been in the company of a lot of mediums and, and, and done this regularly. Um, nowadays, I mean, uh, where, where would you say the information is coming from when you see, see them conduct this, this kind of... Um well, again, um, we have to be very careful because although I believe in life after death, I'm not so naive to think that everything's black and white. Um, Carol Jung said there's this collective unconsciousness where people can maybe pick things out of the air. I mentioned shady mediums. Maybe they're just cold reading you, for instance. Maybe they're just um, you're rubbing your elbow as you walk into a spiritualist church. And the lady, the psychic, might say, can I come to you, sir, in the back row, rubbing... Spirit tells me you've got a sore arm. And that's, you know, cold reading, watching people. But as to where the, this evidence comes from, does it really, really come from people who are passed on? We have to be very careful because I know this sounds smaltzy and, and maybe crazy, and your listeners may go, what? But there is these earthbound spirits who will mimic people who have passed on, members of your family, etc. I mean, I've been working in haunted houses where names have been called out of people and, you know, the mother's name's been called out to, the, to the, the father and he hears the name, but his wife's not there. And so there are people mimicking people who are still alive in point of fact. And so we have to be careful of that. But uh, as to where it comes from, I do believe that um, it is coming from the, the spirit world, that there are people who have passed on and they just want to tell you, hey, we're still here. And, um, you know, that's, that's the best of it. Yeah. Okay, well, to sum up spiritualism then, would you say that spiritualism is um, uh, sort of the faith to come up with your own conclusions and not to be doctoring by anyone? Would you say that's more closely what being spiritual is rather than having a sort of set religion? Yeah, I see where you're coming from on that one, you know. Um, I mean, obviously we don't, don't want any religion to force-feed uh, people their own ideology down your throats. I mean, I don't know if you have been to a spiritualist church yourself. It's, it's very, very nice. Um, they, I mean, all they basically do is sing a few hymns. They talk about the philosophy and what spiritualism truly is and, and means to people. And then, um, obviously, they're going to, later on, the clairvoyance. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's probably one of the world's oldest religions when all said and done. And uh, anybody who hasn't been to a spiritualist church, any of your listeners, yeah, go along. Go along of one Sunday evening, even yeah. if it's just one, once or twice, and see what you make of it yourself. You'll be pleasantly surprised. Okay, okay. Now let's, let's turn to your, uh, your cases of hauntings. So um, just, is there any sort of story that stands out you know, to the majority of the, the, the cases that you've seen? Is there, is there one that you, you want to talk about in general? I'd be here all day talking about these cases, Kevin. Um, yeah, let's, let's run through a couple, and you can always stop me. But um, when I used to hold meetings in London, and um, this lady came up to me after a meeting, she says, Malcolm, 
Would you like to meet dead people? Would you like to see what it's all about? And of course, I'm not going to say no, Kevin. So I said, absolutely. So cutting a long story short, she invited, to, invited me to her home in Chingford. And um, so I went along there and she says, look, what's happening is we have a man who's a psychic. He's going to come here this evening. He's going to sit behind this curtain and we're going to close the curtain. We're going to tie him. I know it sounds bizarre. We're going to strap him with ve- large Velcro straps to this chair and spirit will take over him and he- you'll hear a lot of voices. There'll be a lot of phenomena happening. And, um, you know, just, just see what you think of it. So I went, wow, well, was pretty bizarre. Okay. So I went upstairs, checked the room to make sure there were no hidden tape recorders, devices, trap doors, you name it. Everything was fine. She took us into another room, and, she, and this small glass case uh, was on the sideboard, little glass shelves. And on these glass shelves was rings and military braid and, and stuff. And I went, what's that? She says, Malcolm, these are apports. These are things that just fell into the seance room of their own. And when we've picked them up, they've been very, very hot to touch. And I went, wow, wonderful. So, <laughs> so, so, so anyway, the, the, the chap, Julie, came along. I checked his person. I checked his, his, his body and his, his legs to see if there were any hidden canes or sure. telescopic canes. Nothing was there. We, he went behind. In this corner of the room, there was this black drape. And it, we pulled that back. And... A combination of things happened. It was purely like something out of a, a horror film, really. Suddenly, these bells, these little tiny bells that was hooked onto the, the walls of this room, started tingling, tickling, ding, ding, ding. They were all moving all over the place, the sound of them. Then these voices started to come from all parts of the room, um, spirit voices, children, people, elderly people. And I'm thinking... Now, who's doing this? Who's throwing their voice? Because there were about four <laughs> other people in the room with us, sitting on a chair, looking, staring at this curtain where this chap was behind. And then suddenly, this, the curtain just moved right out. And it was like the shape of a face has moulded the cloth, the curtain of the cloth, and moulded into this, well, I don't know if it was a guy's face, but it was this face. It was just moving all around this cloth. And then suddenly it went back. And, uh, and then the room became in absolutely unbearably cold so much so that when you breathed your breath you know you could see your breath in front of you i'd just also like to say that the room wasn't entirely in darkness the electric light was switched off there was a small red ambient light just fluttering away which you could still see the contour contours of the people sitting beside me in this this uh, cabinet thing this curtain and then suddenly the small chest of drawers which was sitting next to this curtain started to rise up in the air, stopped in midair, started moving across the room and boom, and fell at my feet. And then the spirit voice, this sounds crazy, I wish you were there, spirit voice boomed out, was Mr. Robinson happy with that? So I said into, into the room, into the air, I'd be more happy if you took it back. (laughs) (laughs) So, and did the cardinal sin. I hooked my finger into one of the, there was three drawers in this chest of drawers. I hooked my finger into the top one and I says to myself, this thing is going nowhere. Now, anybody who's listening to the program will know that that's a bad thing to do because you're destroying, you're harming psychic vibrations. You're probably even harming the psychic who's allegedly building up this vibrations to make things happen. And here is me, a researcher, trying to stop it. So anyway, I hooked my finger into this, and after a couple of minutes, it started to shake, as if somebody was holding it and moving it and shaking it and shaking it, and then suddenly just, I couldn't stop it. I just couldn't stop it. It was like a hot knife through butter. It just left my finger, floated up into the air, and went boof. Now, there was nobody beside it. There was still ambient light in the room. Nobody was saying, let's fool Malcolm. Get your hands under this, let's fool Malcolm. No strings, pulleys, nothing. And even if we had captured it on video or something, would anybody would have believed it? I think it comes from people themselves. When your listeners who have had their own psychic experiences know that um, you know various things that may have happened to them, they know truly that it's, they're not on drugs or anything. It's, it's a real deal. Yeah, only when it happens to them, though, yeah. Otherwise, it comes down to just having a bit of faith and believing in the story they're being told, that's right. Um, Absolutely. Has there a, I mean, you mentioned before in the interview that you, you've been touched by, before by, uh, well, call it a ghost. Um, what happened there? 
Well, we were in this uh, this lady uh, called her uh, called us uh, out to investigate uh, her house. She'd had bangings, rappings, noises, strange smells, uh, odours, everything that was happening in her house. It was really, really terrifying her. And so we went along uh, to investigate it. And what, generally what we do is we tend to ask the occupants of the house if it's okay to spend the night there. They can move out of their own home, and nine times out of ten they'll say, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll just stay with neighbours, let you go on with it. Yeah, no problem, which is strange, but there you go. And we occupy the house. And we were in this house in Stirling, and uh, the psychic, uh, this wonderful lady I spoke about earlier, Helen Walters, said, Malcolm, don't you feel spirit in, the, in this room? Don't you feel the energy? Don't you feel the buzz in this room? And I says, no, I mean, honestly, I just, I don't feel anything. Oh, come on, come on. I'll tell you what, Malcolm, stand over there, where? Stand over at the other side of the room, put your arm out, and ask spirit to touch the back of your hand. You sure? Malcolm, just do it. So uh, I moved about six feet to the other end of this room, and we're always working in darkness. Yeah. And um, again, there was a small light, enough to see. And I put my arm out, and I said into space, you know, if there's anybody from spirit side who wants to make themselves known, please touch the back of my hand. Nothing happened. One minute, two minutes, three minutes, nothing happened. I went, this is stupid. Why do I do these things? And on the fourth minute, it was like a massive big Jeff Capes of a man just pushed the back of my hand down, where it more or less slapped my leg. And this wasn't an unconscious muscular movement. Nobody had swiftly run forward or creeped up to me and pushed my hand out. It was so well. And again, it's probably just spirit letting me know that they're there. Uh, very scary, that one. <laughs> very yeah. Scary. I mean, how do you explain that? I mean... I don't know. I mean, uh, I'm convinced as I can be that nobody walked up and pushed my hands down, and I'd be the first to admit that happened. I really, really would. Um, because at the end of the day, just backtracking slightly, if somebody, if Loch Ness, just backtracking, was proved to have been just a normal fish, a big, large sturgeon yeah. fish, I'd be happy, Kevin. Okay, the myth has been destroyed, but that's, that's why I research these things, is to reach an answer. And if there's a normal answer, which nine times out of ten there usually are, then I'd be happy. And the same applies with this, this, the paranormal world. There's a lot of shake, um, fakes and charlatans out there, and we have to be very careful. We have to open up as many doors as possible That's right. to find a rational explanation to account for these things. And we do that. We check everything as we possibly can, yeah. because if we don't, the sceptical say, well, have you tried that? So we've got to be on our toes. <laughs> Should people mess with Ouija boards? Absolutely not. Um, it's, uh, people may laugh at these things. It, it was mass produced by John Waddington in the 60s and 70s, and it was taken off the market. Although you can buy them in specialised shops now. Um, obviously, I'm pretty sure your listeners will be aware of what a Ouija board is, but should there be anybody, it's not. It's basically a piece of hardboard um, about two and a half, three feet or something maybe less, and it's got the letters of the alphabet, and it's got yes and no, and they use, you can either use a glass or a plachette, and it's basically a device, as you know, to um, go through the letters A, B, C, to, to, to form some semblance of words, and those words allegedly are coming from the spirit world. Yeah. And again, it's like what I said earlier, that there are a lot of these earthbound spirits who parade, masquerade and parade as someone else and give you Yes, it's, it's your father here, and, and and it does work. The sad thing is, it does work. But is it our own subconscious mind that's pushing the glass? And I think a lot of it probably is our own minds. The desire and the wish for this glass to move goes through our arms, into our fingers, and subconsciously everyone with fingers on the glass is probably moving that. So... That's, that's, that's the thing to think about as well. OK, Malcolm, we're going to take a break there, so stay tuned. We'll be right back. To connect with the show, email kevin at themoreshow.co.uk.
a show or a guest? Want to know more about The More Show and upcoming guests? Then log on to www.themoreshow.co.uk. Okay, welcome back. I'm joined with the paranormal expert Malcolm Robinson. Now, Malcolm, I'd read somewhere that you've written work on um, ectoplasma, and I'm just very curious to find out what, what is ectoplasma? Well, uh, not what an ectoplasm is such. Um, I mean, it's Back in the, the heady days of spiritualism, where we spoke about briefly earlier, and these psychics claimed that this was like a thin gauze-like material would be coming out of their navels, out of their, the corners of their eyes, down their nose, out their ears, and it would form into um, what's known as these kind of trumpet things, and, and voices would come through, or the ectoplasmic rods would move the table, or, or um, move, change into things. Um, I've never seen it. What I have saw is this chap back in Edinburgh some years ago he began to become aware of what I was doing and he invited me to his, his tenement house. Cutting a long story short, he claimed that his he, dead people came through his face, that his face changed into other faces. So cutting a long story short, I met the guy, very, very nice fella, and I sat down in a chair and I said, well, what do you want me to do? Welcome. Sit, relaxed, just look at my face. I am not going to put you under hypnosis, Malcolm, just look at my face, because what happens is that when you look at my face, I'm not going to say what's going to happen, Malcolm, but things will change. That's all I'll say, things will change. So, and here we go. <laughs> the life yeah. of a researcher, it can be, it has its moments, Kevin. So I'm sitting in front of this guy, looking at his face, and unbelievable, unbelievable. Within a matter of moments, his face, this guy had hair, suddenly I saw a bald head, his hair just disappeared, a bald head, and it was like a big beard, like a Rasputin beard just suddenly materialised. And then his face changed to an old man, a young man, and then it was like a, a, a coloured person's face. And I'm, Actually, I lost the plot, to be honest with you, because I actually stood up, I really did get a fright, and I stood up, what the hell? And he kind of smirked and laughed, and I went, what just happened there? I take it you saw something, Malcolm, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, I certainly did, but you know what? I don't believe my own eyes. I think my own mind has made this. I I can't believe that I saw your face change into all these people, which I did, but I don't trust my own senses. Was it my own mind making it up? And that's the problem I'm faced with. Even though I believe in these things, I'm still ever so much a sceptic. And I'm thinking, maybe because I knew this guy's face was going to change, Maybe my subconscious somehow projected or did something. And to this day, even though I saw it, I don't know what I saw, if that makes sense. It does make sense, yeah. That's, uh, I don't know. What can you put it down to? It's just, it's just you, you have to you either go with it, don't you, or, or not really, I suppose. Yeah, the thing is, I mean, the story doesn't uh, um, end there because the next time I took my video camera, because, you know, obviously you've got to do these things, See up the video camera, and uh, I saw it change uh, face to face. And then looking back on tape, I saw it change on the videotape. So we held meetings in the town of Stirling at that time, my society. And I said, you know what? I'm going to take this footage along and show it at my meeting. And I showed this footage at a meeting in Stirling some years ago. And half the audience went, oh my God, wow, oh my God. And the other half went, what? What? Uh, we don't see anything. 
and it was bizarre. It was a great exercise because half the audience were jumping out of their seats, another half were scratching their heads and saying, well, we can't see anything. And um, it's the same when you look at the psychic phenomena per se. You could have six people in an alleged haunted house and only two may see a shadowy figure or a ghost. And uh, the other four will go, what? Is it because the more psychic you are, the more inclined that you may be to see phenomena happening? It's a possibility. It's not a proven fact, but maybe that's the reason that people see ghosts and some don't. That Yeah. Yeah, indeed, indeed. <laughs> well, now we're going to switch over to uh, one of my favourite sort of subjects as well, which is ufology. And, um, well, okay, let's start with, uh, tell me some of the, the sort of UFO stories, you've, you've, uh, cases you've worked on, and, and, and how much is the sort of ufology side um, in the investigations? Is that a bigger part nowadays or a lesser part? Um. I'm probably better known for my ufology work, my research work, uh, more so in Bonnie Bridge in central Scotland. Um, my heart lies with the paranormal. Uh, my heart lies with investigating ghosts and poltergeists, admittedly. And we've not even scratched the surface of those cases. No. If, if we want to go back and speak some more, we can. But, yeah, ufology. Um, again, 95%, I always say this to anybody I meet, of UFO reports can easily, easily be explained away as having natural, mundane explanations. Leaves 5%. Let's break down the 5% that remain. 3% of that 5% could quite possibly be our own black-budget technology. The stealth aircraft, the Aurora aircraft, black-budget programs of new prototype aircraft being test-flown. I mean, as we know, the stealth aircraft was flying in America for 10 years before the military machine put their hand up and said, you know, yeah, it's ours. And that gave rise to 10 years' worth of delta-shaped UFO craft. That's what we thought it was, and it was just the stealth. And um, so we have to be careful of that. Um, so that's 3%. And the 2% that, that remain, 1% could be some rare and as yet unexplained natural phenomena, something akin to ball lightning being seen in the sky, crackling balls of plasma light, which, do, which have been seen above um, fault lines in earthquake zones. It's like the, the tectonic plate shifts of the, the Earth's crust move. One sh uh, plate goes one side, the other goes the other side, and it, it makes this plasma ball of light project through the surface of the Earth and bob about into the sky. And if you didn't know what that was, to the unsuspecting eye, it could be termed as a UFO. Um, it leaves us with a 1%, and that 1%, here, right now, for me, Malcolm Robinson, I firmly believe that it is exotic, that it is indeed, well, it may not necessarily be extraterrestrial, it could be dimensional. Uh, it's the real deal for me. I mean, probably, maybe not, obviously for not a lot of other people, but there's enough evidence, enough fantastic evidence coming from absolutely pillars of the community. Um, you know, Air Force uh, personnel, military officers, etc., who've seen these things and know full well it's not an aircraft. It convinces me and other people that we're dealing with something very real, and it's always been with us. Okay, um, tell us, tell us just uh, tell us one or two stories that um, uh, um, have, have um, sort of you know intrigued you, and it's, it's, I still really can't explain what what quality you know this, this maybe fits into that one percent. Yeah, I mean, this again, you know, anybody that speaks to me will know you never get one story. <laughs> There's so many, and um, I'll just very briefly run through some with your good self and your listeners. Um, there was a chap up at Craig Luscar Reservoir uh, near Dunfermline in central Scotland in 1994. He's uh, an artist, he's a painter, and he went to this reservoir to photograph, basically photograph the area, and then paint from his photographs. Why he didn't take his easily there in the first place, I'll never know, but there you go. And so he went along there, and he was taking photographs, and suddenly he became aware of this resonating sound, this humming noise. And he went, well, what is that? And he initially thought it was electricity pylons, because these pylons were in the area, and anybody who's stood underneath these monstrous things crossing, crisscrossing the landscape will know that sometimes you can hear this resonating hum, this sound. Sure. So he thought it was that, and then it got louder and louder, and louder, and I went, well, what is that? What? And then he turned around and went, oh, my God, because about three, four hundred yards away in the sky, 
was this disc-shaped object just hovering motionless in the sky. He went, oh my God. And he knew, as most people know, in close proximity UFO sightings, that this wasn't an aircraft, that this wasn't a helicopter. He's a man of the land. He's, he's, he's used to seeing aircraft and stuff. And he went, what is it? And then suddenly it, it was like as if he was enveloped in an old Victorian bell jar. Those Victorian bell jars about three, four feet high with flowers in them had just went right over his body because he couldn't hear birdsong. He couldn't hear the rumble of the traffic on the nearby road. Uh, absolute stony silence. Bump. It was just him and the object, ITI. He had the camera around his neck and then eventually he came to realise, I better take a photograph. And he did take two photographs and uh, these photographs were submitted to our society and they quite clearly show a disc-shaped object in the sky and on the photograph, although admittedly he did say, the witness that is, he says he wished that he had have captured the UFO in all its glory. I said, how? What do you mean? Well, Mr. Robinson, the top part, it was a two-tiered disc, the top part telescoped into the main body of the object and then just skipped away and flew away into the sky. And on the photograph, you can basically, it's not as tall, the top part is not as tall as it was. Anyway, we subjected the photograph to testing here in the UK and America, and to cut a long story short, the, the experts who know better than I said, yep, it's a real deal, it's uh, something in excess of 30 feet, it's not a hubcap, it's not a disc, it's not a clay pigeon plate, it's not a remote control toy plane or disc or what have you, uh, this is real. Um, they did colour contouring, pixel separation, edge enhancement, um, and at the end of the day we have two things, we have a witness and a photograph. But do we have three things? The third thing is, do we have the belief that that's the real deal? And we'll all, we probably never will. Um, again, it gets back to my question, what you know, constitutes evidence. I mean, another photographic case was in 1991 uh, in Pullman, near uh, Grangemouth Petrochemical Plant, where yeah. two photographers managed to capture the underside of this disc-shaped object as it more or less lowered itself, if you like down towards their person and one of the chaps had to bend over backwards and take a photograph of the underside of this circular object with a concave underside. It stopped and it just zipped away into the sky and was gone. With these cases, um, Kevin, what we have to do is we have to, first of all, get in touch with the local police to see if any members of the public had phoned in. We contact local flying clubs for any air activity national airports for any aircraft that could have traversed the skies, helicopter clubs, flying clubs. Uh, you know, as I said earlier, open as many doors as possible to find that answer. We did, and we couldn't find an answer. <laughs> we just had this <laughs> wonderful eyewitness testimony with a cracking photograph, and it's like a piece of the jigsaw from Scotland, from Peru, from Canada. People much better than I doing all this research, collating it all, and put it into a massive big jigsaw to try and impress upon the public to say, look, here's what we've got. Yeah. What have we got here? What yeah. have we got? You know. That's right. That's right. And um, have you ever sort of investigated a, a, a crashed report? Or I'd love to. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, not as much as that. I mean, I did have investigated the the abduction phenomena. And uh, I'm pretty sure your listeners are well aware of that. You know, people who claim, it's a big, big claim, claim to be abducted by these small grey beings and, or taller beings. I'm pretty sure you're aware of that. Yeah. Very, yeah. very briefly. Um, one of the best cases that I've personally worked on occurred in 1992 to two men from Edinburgh, uh, Gary Wood and Colin Wright. These guys, yeah, like anybody, they're aware of the UFO phenomena. See it, the odd bit in the TV, it's in the newspapers but they had no real desire or interest or massive interest in the subject. Anyway, all that was to change on the evening of August the 17th, 1992, because when they left the city of Edinburgh in their car, they were heading towards the small town of Tarbrax in West Lothian. The journey should only have taken them about an hour and a half or so. Sorry, about a, a half an hour, I should tell a lie. And on the way from Edinburgh, to Tarbrax. The road leaves the built-up city of Edinburgh and it goes into the countryside and it's like, you know, there's little houses dotted on the fields there and it's very sparse and barren. And it was late at night and they were travelling down the road and Colin, who was in the passenger seat, said to Gary, Gary, 
What's that? What? What's that hovering above the road? Now, about three, four hundred yards in front of the car, there was this massive, jet black, shiny disc-shaped object hovering above the road. Again, we're talking close level, close proximity sightings here, and um, these guys knew right away, no, 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 this, oh, come on, this is not an aircraft, it's not a helicopter, what is going on here, what is this thing, is it a, a blimp, is it one of these big balloons of Richard Branson, what's going on here? So rather than do a three-point turn, they decided that the best course of action would be to drive underneath this thing and just put to the pedal, you know, let's get out of here and go. Yeah. As the car was directly underneath this object, whatever it was, as it was underneath it, there was like a silver sprinkling of glitter, if you like, this mist or a silver glittering effect came from the underside of this object and hit the roof of the car. And as soon as it did so, as soon as this effect hit the car, both men were catapulted into inky blackness. Couldn't see their hand in front of their face, couldn't see each other, couldn't see the dashboard of the car. They didn't know where they were. They thought they had crashed the car and they were dead, if you like. Um, seconds later, or what appeared to be seconds later, they regained the sight. They didn't stop the car. They drove to their destination and they knocked on the door and the occupants of the house says, where have you been? You're an hour and a half late, because like I said earlier, the journey should have only been a half an hour. You're an hour and a half late. Where have you been? And they proceeded to tell occupants of the house about this crazy thing that they had saw above the car. Now that night, subsequent nights, they had strange dreams. They saw these grey faces come into their dream world. They found scars on their body. Scars on their body that previously were not there. Scoop-like scars, etc. And... Um, they, they went, surely, surely this cannot be one of these crazy UFO stories, can it? What if it is? So they went to the local library, picked out a book by Jenny Randalls uh, with our society telephone number in it, gave me a call. I listened to this amazing story, and I, at that time I advocated the use of hypnosis, and I said, guys, would you like to go under hypnosis yeah. to see if anything happened? To cut a long story short, they did and the typical abduction scenario unfolded that when that effect hit the car, at that stage they were taken forcibly from the car by these small grey creatures, taken on board, well, was it this object, something else, don't know, and taken into different rooms, stripped naked and subjected to some form of medical or clinical um, experimentation which absolutely traumatised both of these guys. And in fact, Gary really wanted to hit out at his captors, but he couldn't. He was absolutely immobilised, lying on this flat table thing. And he says, Malcolm, how I wanted to really hit these guys. I know it sounds crazy, but I had no control. Now, these guys are just names. Are just, it's a nice wee story for your listeners, but I can honestly assure your listeners, these guys are absolutely telling the truth. In fact, a few years later, Gary passed a BBC lie detector test. We did something with the BBC on this one. Means nothing. Yeah, maybe people can fake lie detector tests. Maybe you can get these guys that can do that. So I'm even so I'm even sceptical on that one. But I'll be honest with you, it is a great story. There's much, 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 much more to it than that. But I'll tell you something. These guys, that night, they were catapulted into the Twilight Zone. It did happen. And how I wished your listeners, even me, that I had seen something like that. Uh, I know it sounds crazy, but I say to people, I wish it was me. I wish I was abducted, but sadly it doesn't happen to guys like me. It's a shame. So fascinating! It's a fascinating case. It really is. Yeah. And and these these two guys are still around now. Yeah. They're still around, and um, I mean, basically, what happened was that uh, their lives went really bad. Uh, their marriages suffered, and Gary's wife refused to believe her husband. You're looking for the support of your your woman folk, and she really thought her husband was losing it, and she just and then one night she phoned me, and I took a phone call. Yes, it's uh, and I won't say her name. She said, "I will just make I'll just yeah. say Mary. It's Mary here. Can I apologise to you, Malcolm? Apologise to me? Well, what would you? Why do you want to do that? Well, you know how I haven't supported my husband. I really thought he's losing his marbles. Well, not anymore. I says, "Why? Well, last night I was lying in my bed, and um, Gary was sleeping beside me. I was reading a book." I finished the book, put the book on the bedside table, switched the light off, the room was in darkness, and about 30 seconds later, I felt something round my ankles, and I was pulled. 
I was pulled forcibly down the bed, and where my head was on the pillow, it's now halfway down the bed. And I looked, and I looked at where I was being pulled, and honestly, Mr. Robinson, there was these two grey creatures standing at the foot of my bed, and they let go, and they just waddled through the wall. Now again, Kevin, wonderful story, uh, something like the sci-fi you know, channel, I guess, but I've got to take this woman's word for it. And she says, Malcolm, I do believe my husband now. When it happens to you, that's when you come off the fence. And I thanked her for that. And, um, you know, it's, it's just one of these bizarre cases that we have here. And what annoys me or angers me is people say, well, why? Why are they abducting people? You know, the, the sperm and ova have been taken from males and females. And yeah. if that's the case, they've been doing it for 40, for 50, for 60 years. Why? Why do they still have to take these samples? Um, I mean, we could go on forever about the, the whys and the wherefores of this and why it's happening. I mean, as you know, UFOs have been seen throughout pre-recorded history. They've been painted into Renaissance paintings and allegedly claims in the Bible. And if that's the case, when, why did they not openly say, hi, guys, we're here, yep. Is it because maybe they are our, they put us here? Maybe they seeded us on this planet? They're just gingerly coming over to make alterations? I don't know. It's very, very fanciful. And even I, at this time in my life, I don't hold all that pieces of the jigsaw. Um, we can only speculate, and colleagues in different parts of the world are speculating as well, but... There's something going on, for sure. Yeah, yeah, just to sort of cap it off there, that there, there's more than meets the eye, and, 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 and uh, you know, there's definitely something going on in, in, in the sense that uh, these people wouldn't make up wild accusations like that, I don't think. Well, yes and no, because we've got to, human nature is like that. Human, human beings will try anything to get on the TV, on the radio, and they'll come away with some fancy, fanciful yeah. tales, and we have to be very, very careful. We... <laughs> and analyse these guys, because sometimes in my job I have to ask questions like, excuse me, Mr Smith, yes? What kind of medication are you on? What? Why are you asking me that? And it's one of these questions that I've got to ask just to find out if maybe some medication or drugs that people are on maybe make them think that they're seeing things like sure. this and that. And uh, sometimes I get told to, <laughs> to leave the premises after a question like that, but it would be wrong for me not to find out if medication may be the cause of people's claims. Okay, and do, and do you have a website? Um, not a website as such, but we do have a, a MySpace site, um, and it's quite a long one, so I'll, I'll go slow here. It's uh, www.myspace.com forward slash Malcolm robinson researcher okay. and you'll find some bits and pieces of uh, information about our society on that and yeah it's i mean obviously we'd love to hear from any of your listeners who think that they've maybe seen something maybe they've got a photograph anything at all it will be treated in confidence we we're not experts i get bold as an expert i'm not far from it i'm just a chap who's got this fascination for things weird and wonderful and trying to get a handle on what's going on. Um, okay, well, look, Malcolm, I just want to thank you very much for joining us today. It's been, been highly entertaining. Fantastic. It's, it's been great speaking to you. And I'll just leave you with this one thought. The human mind is like a parachute. It works so much better when it's open. <laughs> <laughs> Malcolm Robinson, thank you so much. To find out more on Malcolm, go to themoreshow.co.uk and look up Malcolm Robertson. You'll find his uh, website and MySpace links. So, until next time, thanks for listening.